From the San Francisco Public Press, you're listening to Civic. Fifty years after President Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs, many global leaders are drawing on lessons from its abysmal failure to push for change. Sensible drug policy should be all about preserving dignity and saving lives, not about criminalizing millions. But in San Francisco, some city officials are advocating for jailing unhoused people who use drugs and murder charges for people who sell drugs. Critics say it's a reactionary approach that won't improve conditions on the streets. There is no plan or strategy around public safety. San Francisco is looking to the past for solutions, specifically the country's history of harshly punishing people who use and sell drugs. We want to find out how those efforts turned out and what they might tell us about where San Francisco is headed. I'm Sylvie Sturm, and this is Civic. This month is the beginning of my 10th year as a Bay Area resident. And when I think about San Francisco's political climate when I moved here, I'm really astounded by the turn we've taken when it comes to homelessness and substance use disorder. It wasn't that long ago that compassion was the leading approach to the dual crisis of poverty and addiction. In 2014, California voters supported a measure for leniency in nonviolent drug offenses like reducing charges from felonies to misdemeanors for simple drug possession and offering rehab programs as an alternative to prison sentences. In 2019, San Francisco voters supported a district attorney who vowed to revise criminal justice policies to reduce incarceration, like bail reform and alternatives to prosecution and sentencing. Since then, the city experienced an alarming surge in fatal overdoses and open drug use that seems to have taken a toll on compassion. Lately, conversations have become increasingly dominated by anger towards people suffering from substance use disorder and homelessness. A resident highlighted the effect of this compassion fatigue during the public comment period at a Board of Supervisors meeting last June the San Francisco Public Library Eureka Valley Harvey Milk Branch had cut off Wi-Fi after hours in an attempt put forward by the neighbors and their supervisor, Mandelman, that this would presumably basically discourage or get rid of homeless in the neighborhood. Despite the library's own study that there was no correlation between uh, Wi-Fi and any kind of crime in the neighborhood, Last May, city and state law enforcement agencies launched a police crackdown on drug use and drug sales in San Francisco's hardest-hit areas. That's despite numerous studies showing that incarceration doesn't deter drug use, much less help someone experiencing a mental health crisis. And in fact, it leads to worse outcomes. According to researchers at Oregon State University and the Oregon Department of Corrections, People recently released from incarceration face a risk of opioid overdose 10 times greater than the general public. And a 2020 study out of Washington State that was published in the Health Justice Journal found that drug overdose was the leading cause of death after release from prison, 13 times higher than the general public. And a 2018 study in North Carolina published in the American Journal of Public Health found that in the first two weeks after release, former inmates were 40 times more likely to die of an opioid overdose than the general public. 
Those findings are highlighted in public overdose prevention and addiction health plans created by the city's own agencies. Agencies like Mental Health SF, the Treatment on Demand Coalition, the Supervised Injection Task Force, the Methamphetamine Task Force, the Drug Dealing Task Force, and the Tenderloin Emergency Center. People tend to believe that San Francisco embraced a public health approach to widespread addiction and mental health disorder. But health experts say the city has never fully committed to the plans laid out by these agencies. And now, overdose deaths are up to nearly three a day in San Francisco. In August, the city's chief medical examiner reported that in the month of July alone, 74 people lost their lives to overdose for a total of 473 deaths in the first seven months of 2023. Here's Dr. Grant Colfax, director of San Francisco's Department of Public Health, giving an emotional press conference after these figures were released. It pains me to share that this is the highest overdose deaths San Francisco has experienced. The grim statistics rose even further in September when the chief medical examiner announced that 84 people had died of overdose in the month of August. That ties January 2023 for the most drug-related fatalities in a single month since counting began in 2020. The latest tally brings the total up to 563 deaths so far this year and puts San Francisco on track to surpass the city's highest number of overdose deaths in one year. That was 725 in 2020. But instead of listening to health experts, some city officials say they don't care about studies. Here's Mayor London Breed talking at a Board of Supervisors meeting last June. You can quote all these statistics all you want, but at the end of the day, you've never lived in it. You've never experienced it. You don't know what most of these people and their family members are dealing with. So no, I'm not gonna start using some sort of system based on what you suggested I should use. I'm gonna continue to make sure that we are providing treatment, providing compassionate care, but at the end of the day, when we need to make arrests because someone's breaking the law and need to be held accountable and can potentially be forced into treatment of services, I'm going to do so. In keeping with this punitive approach, Breed appointed Brooke Jenkins to be the city's top prosecutor in October 2022. Jenkins won Breed over with a tough-on-crime platform as she successfully campaigned to recall the previous district attorney, Chesa Boudin. He was portrayed as soft on crime for his criminal justice reforms, which included diverting people with substance use disorder into treatment programs rather than jails. Jenkins made her position on drugs clear during her acceptance speech in July 2022. I will, from minute one, begin enforcing our drug crime laws so that we can take back our streets for our neighborhoods and our cities. We are a city of second chances, but the truth is we have to draw a line with people who choose hate, violence, and a life of crime. With my years of experience as the designated hate crimes prosecutor and in the sexual assault and homicide units, I do believe that I am uniquely prepared to address the most serious crimes that are affecting San Francisco. But it's not just violent crime that must be the priority of the DA's office. While campaigning to recall the former DA, Jenkins routinely said in media interviews and in tweets that Boudin's policies led to lost lives, dangerous street conditions, business closures, and chaos. In September 2022, 
Jenkins vowed that San Francisco residents would start to see a change in public drug use and street conditions within a few months. After taking office, she went full steam ahead with her plan to introduce harsh penalties for people she accused of, quote, selling death. But a year later, she faced an angry crowd during a town hall-style gathering in the Tenderloin. We got seniors that can't or won't come outside. We got children that can't play outside anymore. We want our neighborhood back. Jenkins deflected criticism that her office wasn't doing enough to clear the streets of undesirable elements. Instead, she blamed county judges for not going along with her plan to hold people in jail indefinitely. Here she is talking to ABC7 in July. We have filed over 100 motions to detain in drug dealing cases, but only had somewhere under 20 of those be granted. Judges are refusing to make sure that these individuals stay in custody, and that has to change. And here she is during a town hall meeting in the Tenderloin last August. We're going in filing these motions arguing about the deadliness of fentanyl and about the dangerousness of this conduct, and yet and still, the judges are ignoring it. Critics say blaming judges is a red herring that distracts people from seeing how disorganized the city's approach has become. David Moroff is CEO of an independent nonprofit called the San Francisco Pretrial Diversion Project. He works with judges, jail health services, and lawyers to divert defendants out of the criminal justice system and into training and treatment programs. The biggest challenge with what's going on right now is that there is no plan or strategy around public safety. The city and county used to have a mayor's office of criminal justice. It was a really critical piece of the puzzle because it was the convener of public safety strategy and assessment and outcomes and was the authority on public safety in San Francisco. San Francisco is devoid of that function. It's still not clear to me who's deciding that we should do drug busts in the Tenderloin. Who's deciding that we should use the Community Justice Center? Who's deciding our strategies and our next steps around all these people that are in jail? They're going to be released. You can't hold them forever. So what's the plan for when they're released? Experts say that arresting low-level drug dealers could also undermine public safety by taking resources away from fighting violent crime. Keith Humphreys is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Stanford University. Last May, he addressed a California State Assembly Committee dedicated to overdose prevention, which was chaired by San Francisco Representative Matt Haney. People at the bottom, you can punish them all day and they'll just be immediately replaced. And other thing, of course, is if you prioritize doing that, you're filling up cells that you might want to have people who've done other things in, right? If we super criminalize low-level drug crimes, we effectively decriminalize going after rape, arson, murder, because there's only so much resource in the criminal justice system. So that, I think, was the big mistake of the 80s and early 90s that I would hope we would not repeat. A Pew Research study from 2018 revealed that more imprisonment doesn't reduce a state's drug problems. The data showed no relationship between prison terms and drug misuse. The study's authors concluded, quote, The evidence strongly suggests that policymakers should pursue alternative strategies that research shows work better and cost less. That message has become increasingly popular around the world. 
Several former heads of state and world business leaders are pushing for drug policy reform through an organization called the Global Commission on Drug Policy. These are people who used to hold the highest offices in the world, like Premier of Western Australia, President of Poland, Mayor of Prague, Prime Minister of New Zealand, President of Colombia, and, for added measure, Virgin founder Richard Branson. The group posted this message on YouTube. The so-called war on drugs has achieved nothing but death, despair, and poverty. We've seen the really dreadful consequences of drug policy in terms of infectious diseases, poverty, marginalization, on people everywhere who are not allowed to speak up because the simple act of using drugs is severely punished. In the criminalization and incarceration of people who use drugs, that brings nothing positive and destroys lives. When in office, some of us led repressive policies. It didn't work. We could argue we had less evidence, less proof of the harms of prohibition. We prefer to focus our energy on preventing that errors of the past be repeated in the future. Sensible drug policy should be all about preserving dignity and saving lives, not about criminalizing millions. Do the hard work in fighting powerful and well-infiltrated criminal organizations instead of sending millions of non-violent people behind bars. San Francisco criminal justice officials have several options other than harsh sentences and incarceration. A network of programs allow defendants to have their criminal cases diverted outside the traditional criminal justice system. These programs focus on the defendant's needs. Most of them are structured for people suffering from mental health or behavioral health disorders, as well as drug addiction or poverty. They range from pretrial diversion to the more intensive collaborative courts, like behavioral health courts, drug court, and courts dedicated to veterans and felony defendants aged 18 to 25. Here's David Moroff again. Diversion is a one-year prescriptive intervention where people have to meet certain requirements, and if they do, their charges are dropped. And they're usually for lower-level misdemeanor cases. A lot of the people that are being arrested now people who don't have deep criminal histories, people who usually aren't experiencing deep levels of homelessness and other issues. And those programs in particular have incredible success rates. So we're talking 97, 98, 99% of the people succeed in that environment. Philip Jones is a clinical social worker and member of the Pretrial Diversion Project Board. He's also a former client. Jones said that the support he received through the Pretrial Diversion Project allowed him to realize that he was worth more than a life of incarceration. From a young age, I was told in school by teachers, by doctors, that my behavior wasn't normal, right? I wasn't able to sit in a classroom and go through eight hours of school every day without some kind of disturbance, right? I had a lot of energy. I benefited more from physical play, art, things that kind of excited a different dopamine response than just like normal completion of tasks or mathematics or science. And so for a long time, there was this idea that I was 
far past the norm to where I needed stronger interventions than maybe my peers, right? So I spent a lot of time in the office, spent a lot of time suspended, juvenile hall, arrested time and time again. I started to believe it, right? I started to believe that I was this person that was destined to be incarcerated over and over again, which is part of my story. This person that was incapable of holding a job, of getting higher education, right? College and things like that, that I was othered. And I was kind of put in this category where I felt really lost. And then even just that alone is like enough to be confusing. I think every young person, man, woman, non-binary goes through that phase where they're really trying to discover their own identity. And when you're kind of being forced to participate and to believe that you deserve a certain treatment, you kind of are really quickly see the world's response to who you are. And for me, I think that in combination with real things, right? Exposure to trauma, some violence in the home, experimentation with substances, addiction, mental health, just kind of fueled my engagement with the criminal justice system, right? And it's not that I was, from the beginning, I wasn't out there to harm people. I was, a lot of my behavior was around stealing to get drugs, doing drugs, and, you know, trespassing. The treatment that I was getting from society was just to the extreme to where I felt I deserved certain consequences for just really existing, right? I first was incarcerated at 17, first run in with police and kind of probation and stuff like that was at 16. And I spent ongoing, whether it was court monitoring, incarceration, or being impacted by incarceration, I spent the next six years. At one point, it was every other month I was in jail, right? I would get a warrant for court and I'd end up in jail again. And it just, it wasn't working. And I came to SF Pretrial when I was in a diversion program called Community Justice Court in San Francisco. It's the court for like Polk Street area. And they assigned me a case manager from SF Pretrial Diversion. And at first when I was with SF Pretrial Diversion, you know, they would assist me with things like GA, right? Or food stamps. And it's food stamps. It's not like they were giving me thousands of dollars. It was maybe $60, $75 a month to get the food that I needed. Just enough to kind of keep me fed for maybe one or two weeks at the time. They would help me find housing. And it wasn't that they gave me a brand new place to live. It was a 90-day shelter bed, right? So I was living at a shelter or something like that. They would help me with various group therapy, right? Different programs on substance use or trauma, or even they offered anger management and things like that. But a lot of the times I just would come to their office, check in with my case manager, let them know that I was alive and that I was still out there and maybe talk to them for a while. And, you know, back then, honestly, they had a cot in one of the offices and I would go in and sleep for a few hours on the cot, you know, and that's how I got to know my case manager. And that's how I got to know the program. And, you know, eventually a couple years later, I was a graduate of the program, graduate of behavioral health court, you know, successfully completed uh, treatment for substance use disorder and learned a lot, enough about my bipolar to understand the importance of medication support, ongoing therapy, and I was successfully housed. So SF Pretrial really 
stepped in and helped the court process seem a lot less cold, helped me feel a part of something other than this just jail cell, court, arrest, right? Something that kind of pivoted that cycle into a healing cycle, right? Which, you know, I wish I had, it had happened sooner, but it was just on time because SF Preacher was there to help facilitate that change. Once his life was stabilized, Jones decided he wanted to help others going through the same experiences he did. Last May, he earned a master's degree in social work. Currently, I'm placed as a therapist at a middle and high school. And, you know, I see myself in the kids I work with every day. I'm literally in the neighborhood that I grew up with, you know, or just south of the neighborhood I grew up with here in Auckland. And so I think that's part of my story is there is like the financial piece of like, you know, professionalism. I think that's important. I think I value that, right? Life is expensive. The cost of living is expensive. You know, I want my own family. I want to enjoy the same freedoms and privileges that others enjoy. And there's also that aspect of just feeling enriched by your work and finding purpose. And I think I fell in love with that. And so I love when clients feel that they can be comfortable with me, when they feel they can talk to me. And they feel that I really see them on a level maybe others haven't in the past. Along with helping people get their lives back on track, David Moroff said that pretrial diversion programs are a better alternative for public safety than traditional systems that people have gotten used to, like bail. We're measured by public safety. We're measured about whether or not people get arrested. I'm not sure the public always understands when they see, for example, Dog the Bounty Hunter, Like the bail industry really has no interest in public safety. The bail industry is not out there actively connecting people to programs and doing outreach and knocking on tents and putting people in housing because it's going to help them get back to court and not commit another crime. The bail industry is just saying, okay, put up this money, you get out quickly. There is no incentive for the bail industry to really protect public safety in the same way pretrial services is designed to protect public safety. Despite successful outcomes, San Francisco's district attorney has trivialized court diversion programs. In an April 2022 tweet, Jenkins wrote, quote, Diversion results in dismissal and requires a fraction of the work that true rehabilitation programs do. Alexandra Prey is an attorney with the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. She said Jenkins' heavy prosecutorial approach undermines the goal of helping people develop skills to lead a better life without selling drugs. We're not doing anything to help them not need to sell drugs. And so it's not fixing the problem, and it just leads to the clients ending up back on the street. And it's maddening to have a district attorney's office who says that their goal is to clean up the streets, but we have this proven way to actually make like substantive changes and not just temporarily fix the problem and we're avoiding it. The DA's office is willfully avoiding it. So now those clients just end up on felony probation and a lot of them end up picking up new cases. Since Jenkins took office, referrals to the pretrial diversion project are down 70%, according to Moroff. Jenkins is instead pushing for defendants to remain in jail. 
and she wants to impose the most extreme punishments in cases where fatal overdoses occur. She announced in September last year that she would pursue murder charges against any suspected fentanyl dealer who could be linked to a fatal overdose. Here's San Francisco Deputy Public Defender Sue Jung Kim. Brooke Jenkins, when she took office last July, she started having her attorneys in court read this admonition to our clients who are charged with drug sales, that if anyone dies as a result of their drug sales, they could be charged with murder. Second-degree murder charges are allowed when defendants don't intend to kill, but there's evidence they're aware that their actions might lead to death. The idea is that admonishing the defendant provides evidence of their awareness. We've successfully fought that. We've asked the judges to make them stop saying that. First of all, it contains a lot of legal inaccuracies. There's no law that says selling fentanyl, even if it leads to death, you know, could be murder. I mean, there's a lot of proof issues, causation issues. I mean, the person who ingests the drug does it voluntarily. It's not like, you know, putting a gun to someone's head and pulling the trigger. Jenkins didn't give up on the strategy. She joined a campaign for a state Senate bill called Alexandra's Law that would require people convicted of selling fentanyl to sign a statement saying they know they could be charged with second-degree murder if someone dies of overdose. Here, again, is a way to ensure evidence of a defendant's awareness to allow harsher charges. Democratic Senator Tom Umberg of Orange County drafted the bill. During a state Senate committee hearing last April, Umberg equated it to an existing law that's meant to hold convicted drunk drivers accountable. The Watson advisement is an advisement that's given to somebody who is convicted of driving under the influence. They're told, look it, you've driven under the influence. You now know that because you've been convicted. Driving under the influence is very, very dangerous. If you do it again, you may kill somebody. So you're being warned that your punishment may well be increased if you drive drunk again. There's no requirement, by the way, that you show in the first instance, prior to getting the advisement, that somehow you knew you were driving drunk. But if you drive drunk again, we're just letting you know this punishment could be increased. The bill was named after Alexandra Capaluto, a 20-year-old college student who died after unknowingly taking a pill laced with fentanyl. Her father, Matt Capaluto, testified at the Senate committee hearing. I am a father whose daughter was killed by a drug dealer who traded her life for a few bucks. The evidence showed Alexandra was seeking Percocet. The drug dealer later admitted to knowing the pills he sold her were counterfeit oxycodone pills made of fentanyl. I've heard callbacks to the war on drugs and the failures of those policies, and it all sounds catchy and makes people feel guilty. I get it. But I have yet to hear a logical reason for refusing to give drug dealers a warning for selling counterfeit pills to people while knowing that person could die. Ultimately, the bill didn't pass because state senators like San Francisco Representative Scott Weiner and Nancy Skinner of Oakland said it would have too many unintended consequences. Here's Scott Weiner. You know, in San Francisco, there's enormous frustration around the open-air drug dealing, particularly in the Tenderloin, and other neighborhoods, too, but particularly in the Tenderloin. And I have been very clear that we need to disrupt and end that open-air drug market. That is a public safety, huge problem for the people of the Tenderloin, for residents, for people who work there, people who own businesses there. No one 
should have to deal with that. No one should have to have their kid going to school walking past drug dealers on the street. And I am a supporter of disrupting and ending that open-air drug market. But this bill is not just about the tenderloin. We are making policy for the 40 million people of the state of California, from the ocean to Nevada, from Oregon to the Mexico border. And the idea that some college student selling a pill to his roommate and having no idea and no reason to know that there's fentanyl in there would then get this nuclear murder warning on his or her record. I think that's a step too far. And I think people should at least have to have had some indication that what they were selling had fentanyl in it for this to apply. Nancy Skinner explained her reasoning while getting heckled by people in the public gallery. The fact that you could be fearful that if the person's overdosing, that you could be convicted, that that would lead you then to not call 911 and intervene in the overdose. These are the types of things we are trying to avoid. We have bills, and the senator has one, I have one, to hold our social media companies, for example, responsible for their quick. Sir? Yes, and we are. And let, excuse me, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you, Senator Umberg. Again, I appreciate the difficulty of this discussion. If this mirrored the Watson admonishment, I would be an I vote. And we have offered to Senator Umberg a number of times language that would mirror the Watson admonishment. And I have committed to him, I would vote I. I cannot vote I in its current form. Nevertheless, some California counties have introduced second-degree murder charges while prosecuting cases involving drug-related deaths. In July, a 21-year-old man in Placer County was the first in California to be convicted of murder over fentanyl. He pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for providing fentanyl to a 15-year-old girl who subsequently died. And in August, a jury in Riverside County found a man guilty of second-degree murder for the fentanyl-related death of a 26-year-old woman. The charge carries a potential sentence of 15 years to life. The approach is reminiscent of the ramped-up charges seen during the 1980s and 90s. In our previous episode, I went over President Richard Nixon's War on Drugs, launched in 1971, and how we found out 25 years later that it was all a purposeful attack on left-wing activists and the Black community. That war ramped up big time under President Ronald Reagan. Here he is signing the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 while naming two police officers who died in the line of duty. The provision providing the death penalty for narcotics kingpins and drug-related murderers, along with tough new provisions dealing with everything from money laundering to international interdiction and state and local drug enforcement, are just the weapons Eddie and Enrique's comrades-in-arms need to fight an effective war. The 1986 Act established mandatory minimum sentencing, including the infamous 100-to-1 ratio between crack and powder cocaine. Laura Thomas is Director of Harm Reduction Policy at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. We heard from her in our last episode. 
She explained that development in an August 2019 lecture that was broadcast by UCTV. Congress decided that they were going to um, do something about this, and what they did was they put in place significantly higher sentences for crack possession than we had for cocaine. Now, crack and cocaine are essentially the same thing. Crack is cocaine processed with baking soda, and it has a number of different impacts in terms of how you use it, how frequently you use it, how long the high lasts. But it's essentially the same thing chemically, and yet the sentences that we had for crack cocaine possession, the same amount of crack as cocaine, you would serve a hundred times longer sentence for that crack possession than you would for the cocaine possession. And needless to say, this was implemented immediately in extremely racially disparate ways, where the vast majority of people who have been arrested, charged, and convicted, and are serving time for crack possession in this country are Black and Latinx people. Even though drug abuse surveys from the National Institute of Health documented larger numbers of white crack users from 1980 to 1995, the overwhelming number of arrests came from Black communities. That was just part of the justice system's fierce response to widespread drug addiction. In 1984, the Comprehensive Crime Control and Safe Streets Act eliminated parole in the federal system, which led to a wave of geriatric prisoners. Prisons filled up with people. Many of them were convicted of low-level and nonviolent drug offenses serving outrageous sentences. They got 10, 20, 30 years, even life imprisonment, and it hardly raised an eyebrow. Then, in 1994, President Bill Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, also known as the Clinton Crime Bill. This was the largest crime bill in the history of the country. Then-Senator Joe Biden drafted the Senate version of the legislation in cooperation with the president of the National Association of Police Officers. This bill created 60 new death penalty offenses under 41 capital statutes, including crimes related to non-homicidal drug offenses. So what was the result of this massive crime bill? Three years later, in February 1997, Clinton shed some light while announcing yet another measure called the National Drug Control Strategy. A million Americans are arrested every year for violating drug laws. Three quarters of the growth in the number of federal prison inmates is due to drug offenses. We will enforce the law vigorously, but we have to do more than make more jail space. I saw yesterday that two of our largest states, Florida and California, now have prison budgets bigger than their higher education budgets, that prison construction is growing all over America much faster than constructions in our colleges and universities. From 1980 to 2020, the number of people in jails, state prisons, and federal prisons across the country went from half a million to more than 1.6 million, and around 350,000 of them were behind bars over drugs according to the Prison Policy Initiative, a criminal justice policy think tank. That slow march towards mass incarceration was dominated by Black Americans, according to a study by a prison reform advocacy group called Sentencing Project, one in 81 Black adults in the United States is serving time in state prison. And while they're vastly overrepresented in the prison population, 
it's even worse for those serving long sentences. In 2019, 14% of Americans were Black, but Black people made up a third of the country's prison population, and nearly half of those prisoners were serving at least 10 years. Those figures help to explain the racial disparity in wealth, homelessness, and fatal overdoses that we've been reporting on over previous episodes of this series. While Black people are 5% of San Francisco's population, they make up a third of fatal overdoses and about a third of the homeless population. Here's Laura Thomas again. A lot of things are not accessible to people with a history of uh, drug conviction. Federal student loans, for example, much public housing. Often you can't even visit your family members in public housing for fear of them losing their housing. There's a lot of employment barriers, especially if you need to have any kind of license or certification, whether that's to be a barber or a beautician or a registered nurse. Many, many licensing boards have permanent bars on people with a drug conviction. No matter if they're in recovery, they been treated, they haven't used a drug in, you know, 20 years, that doesn't matter. Food stamps, we only just got rid of this in California a few years ago. People with a drug conviction, and only people with a drug conviction, had a lifetime bar on receiving food stamps in this state. Child custody, certainly the right to vote, is, you know, taken away. It's doubtful that Nixon, Reagan, or Clinton could have successfully imposed their draconian measures without the media's help. In the early 80s, publishers and broadcasters were issuing daily reports on the scourge of crack cocaine, with the black community always in the spotlight. But they reserved their most withering reports for black women. Here's a story that was broadcast in the mid-80s by the CBS TV news magazine, West 57th. A pregnant woman smokes crack cocaine. Her intense high lasts only a few seconds, but it can leave her unborn child with a lifetime of trouble. Medical experts say that in Miami, 10 crack babies are born every day. Statistics are nearly the same or worse in many major cities. The crack baby phenomenon is so ingrained in my own mind from all those news stories back in the 80s that it's hard to believe they were largely untrue. But today, the scientific community widely agrees that long-term ill effects of crack use on fetuses were vastly exaggerated. Retro Report, a nonprofit journalism organization that educates audiences on historical events, produced a video that included interviews with key players in the crack baby hysteria. It all began in the 80s after Dr. Ira Chesnoff of the University of Illinois College of Medicine noticed a phenomenon in a study involving 23 babies. One of the things that we see about babies who have been exposed to cocaine is they tend to be very tremulous and shaky, very fine kinds of tremors. But a second, more extensive study by Dr. Claire Coles of Emory University School of Pediatrics found a different conclusion. The effects didn't seem consistent with the action of the drug itself. Many of the children who were the so-called classic cocaine babies were premature babies. And the symptoms that were seen on the videos, on television, the, you know, tremoring arms and all that, that was prematurity. You could have taken any premature baby and gotten the same image. I think that people got very focused on cocaine is the cause of this, rather than thinking substance abuse is the cause of this, maternal lifestyle is the cause of this, social issues are the cause of this. 
Fast forward 40 years, and current findings support her study. There's no particular evidence of this social-emotional deficit. You're not seeing really broad-scale, severe developmental problems, as was predicted. The schools have not been overwhelmed by the flood of cocaine-exposed children. The paper was a very preliminary kind of finding, and it really shouldn't have been generalized to the extent it was, which I believe that Dr. Chasnoff eventually came to himself and said that he felt that this didn't really represent the whole of the situation. But the more conclusive studies didn't catch on, and the hype led to astonishing penalties for pregnant women who were addicted to crack. Again, CBS's West 57th. 22-year-old Denise Gathers gave birth twice last year. Both infants tested positive for cocaine. In February, prosecutors in the coastal city of Fort Lauderdale, knowing that drug charges just wouldn't stick, charged Denise instead with child abuse. I'm not going to plead guilty to child abuse because I didn't abuse no child. This is not something to punish a person for. I think being addicted to crack cocaine is punishment enough. You don't have to send a person to prison for them to learn a lesson. In the most aggressive prosecution yet, two women in central Florida have been charged not just with child abuse, but with delivery of a controlled substance to a minor, their infant children. If convicted, the women face 30 years in jail and drug testing by the state for the rest of their childbearing years. It seems not much has changed with the media. Many news outlets report horrific stories about fentanyl without giving them a second thought, no matter how unbelievable. In 2021, news outlets across the country seized on a story about a police officer overdosing just by being in the vicinity of fentanyl. The alleged incident was caught on video and posted by the San Diego Police Department on its YouTube channel in August 2021. You're okay. Don't be sorry. There's nothing to be sorry about. I got you, okay? I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you die. It's okay. Just focus on your breathing, okay? Focus on it. I need Narcan! I'm Corporal Scott Crane from the San Diego County Sheriff's Department. My trainee was exposed to fentanyl and nearly died. It was our first radio call of the day, and this was a Deputy Five Eyes radio call. He found a white substance that he suspected was drugs. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it's, it's a powder. Um, it could be cocaine or fentanyl. It, it tested together. positive yeah. for fentanyl. That stuff's no joke, dude. It's super dangerous. I was like, hey, dude, too close. You can't get that close to it. A couple seconds later, he took some steps back and he collapsed. It was in an instant. It's as though you like, my lungs just locked up. I, 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 I couldn't breathe. I was trying to gasp for breath, but I, I couldn't breathe at all. It's an invisible yeah. killer. He would have died in that parking lot if he was alone. Fire department got there, put him on the gurney. His eyes rolled back in his head, and he started to OD again. And he was ODing the whole way to the hospital. The video went viral, clocking over 5 million views. News outlets across the country reported on the video uncritically. But right away, it was widely debunked by toxicologists and health professionals who say fentanyl is not transmissible through the air or by touching with bare hands. Meanwhile, the deputy who supposedly OD'd wasn't tested to determine whether fentanyl was even in his system. And it turned out he had a history of passing out. The Voice of San Diego news outlet 
reported that an unedited version of the video, which has since been deleted, captured the deputy telling paramedics, quote, This is probably my sixth or seventh time I've fallen on my head. But the damage was done. There's still widespread belief that simply being exposed to fentanyl is deadly. The media also jumped on reports that malicious drug dealers were lacing Halloween candy with rainbow fentanyl. Jenkins herself repeated the story to support her ongoing campaign for harsher penalties for drug-related crime. But it turned out that story was also a myth. There's no denying that fentanyl is behind the huge surge in overdose deaths in San Francisco. That crisis began in 2017 when fentanyl made its way into the drug supply. This year, fentanyl has been involved in nearly 80% of fatal overdoses, according to the city's chief medical examiner. But public health experts denounced the misinformation over fentanyl, saying it harms the ability of first responders to treat people who do overdose. That level of hysteria may also create a level of stigmatization that causes people to hesitate calling for help if someone overdoses. When it comes to reducing overdose fatalities, harm reduction advocates say there's a solution that guarantees lives will be saved. Safe consumption sites. Also known as overdose prevention centers, these are places where people can take their drugs using clean supplies under supervision. If something goes wrong, trained personnel are there for immediate help. For more than 30 years, these centers have operated around the world, successfully reversing thousands of overdoses without a single fatality. In 2007, San Francisco health officials seemed poised to open what was then called a safe injection site. But the political will wasn't there. We'll take a closer look at the long battle to bring overdose prevention centers to San Francisco and why it's been unsuccessful so far. And we'll look at an operation in New York City that many harm reduction advocates in San Francisco hope to emulate. The main ingredient is love. So when people come through the door, they're met by love. And then the healing process begins. I'm Sylvie Stern, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic comes to you from KSFP LP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional music was supplied by the Blue Dot Sessions. Our team includes producer Leanna Wilcox and contributor Mel Baker, who is also the program director at KSFP. Cynthia Chavez is our vocal coach. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org. Our staff includes publisher Lila LaHood, executive director Michael Stoll, development director Lisa Rudman, copy chief Kurt Aguilar, photojournalist and reporter Jessica Prado, and reporter Madison Alvarado. Civic airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP. New episodes on Thursdays. Subscribe to our podcast by looking for Civic from the San Francisco Public Press wherever you get your podcasts. We're the one with San Francisco's skyline in our logo. Thanks for listening.